Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. Fear of death. What is death? Is it a flatlining on the EEG in which the brain goes quiet? Is it cardiac arrest, the stopping of the heart? Is it the departing of consciousness from the body? Why does our definition of death change? If we cannot define death, how do we understand our fear of it? What's the difference, for example, between what we feel about different kinds of death, like natural death, murder, and accidental death? In this episode, we will explore the meaning of death in our own experiences, in the current science of near-death experience, and in the residues of the pandemic and our fears of contagious illness. Can we explore the meaning of death in the same way we explore the meaning of life? Welcome, Polly. Hi, Eleanor. We're back. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yes, yes. And so. this feels very, very, very current right now to be dealing with this. And also today we have a guest with us, a new member of our team, yeah. Gary Jevitt. So Polly, would you like to introduce him to our listeners? Yes. And so Gary Jevitt, who's now with the team for Real Dialogue LLC is an award-winning professional in TV post-production and is now involved in a TV series called The Death Show, which examines beliefs and practices involving death across cultures. He's also a lifetime practitioner of Buddhism, just as you and I are. When I say lifetime, I mean adult lifetime. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, as we talk about death and... <laughs> Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, So, you know, I want to start with this whole issue about what is death. Right. Because most people think they know what death is. Right, right. And uh, let me say that here in space-time, life and death are bound together. Right. So the moment you enter in, let's say the moment you enter into being a zygote in a human womb, you may die, or the person carrying you may die from your birth. And so even on a very ordinary level, birth and death are bound together. You know, from a Buddhist perspective, there's a constant emphasis on the fact that you are neither alive nor dead. You are in this combination of being both. And that is the nature of being in samsara, in this world cycle, what we could call space-time, 
where space-time is ruled by entropy, right? Everything here declines from what we can tell. And so, so life and death are just bound. They're bound, they're bound together. together. And we really only get into big problems when we try to separate them. Right. Which we do as humans. Exactly. You know? Whereas the other animals, like the dogs and the cows and so on, they're just in life and death. They're in it, and so they're they're born, or they develop, or they may die, or whatever. But they're they're not making a theory out of it, and they're not particularly afraid of it, except maybe at the last moments when they're dying, they they feel the fear and anxiety that I think are a part of the organism shutting down. But humans make a problem about life death. Well, death is a big mystery. It's probably the biggest mystery. Well, I don't know. Life yeah. and death are bound together, yes. so life is a mystery too. Yes, exactly. So it's exactly. not set aside. Yes, yes. And I think we're starting to uh, wake up to that fact now more than ever before. I mean, I'm finding that, that there's more attention on this, more interest in exploring this, the relationship of life and death together, that bond between the two. Well, let's say maybe that's true for the us 20th, 21st century people, because we became heavy-duty materialists, we separated life from death, we started panicking about death, but in other periods of time, humans were not doing this. So humans have had a long history of welcoming some understanding of yeah. afterlife into their current life, and those two were blended together in a way that involved ritual, symbolism, all kinds of ceremonies, and contact with the dead. In the same way that, that the ancient people also had a relationship to the earth, they weren't separated from the earth. So, right, there was yeah. a sort of non-separation philosophy. Exactly. But now we have a separation philosophy. Exactly. And so, you know, mm. basically I want to frame everything that we're talking about in the framework of the problems of materialism. And materialism is the belief that the world we are in is fundamentally a material world in which everything like consciousness and life and death are generated from a material organism. And right now, at this particular time, we believe they're generated from the brain, you know, like the human brain generates consciousness. It's what signals that you're dead is if you flatline on a, an EEG. And this kind of materialism has created a panic in people about death and dying. Okay. And Polly, can I ask you a question when you're talking about materialism where you're also inferring that it's the end point? In other words, there's nothing after death. I mean that, you know, you live your life and you die and there's nothing after that. It's well, just... That's the materialist point of yes, view. Yes, that's what I... Yeah. Because the idea is that our bodies are made of material elements which we can track through chemistry, biology, physics, materialist science. And we can establish that there's an end point to that organism. Uh -huh. And then the, the following on of the philosophy of materialism is that your consciousness is generated from your body, and so when your body is dead, your consciousness so, is exactly. dead. The okay. show is over, and that's the end. Right, right. And right. that has been the, I would say that's been the presiding belief structure for educated North Americans, you know, and, and some educated okay. Europeans, 
And then when you get to the rest of the world, Africa, Asia, and so on, they've had different belief structures. Yes, Most do. of them have not gone into the entirely into this materialistic right. paradigm. So, you know, it's a 20th century, 21st century thing to be so afraid of death. Not that people from the beginning, from what we know back with the Sumerians and Gilgamesh, they were searching for some way to transcend death. And even the Buddha, he got into the whole routine of finding a dharma that can break suffering by wanting to get people out of the problem of illness, old age, and death. Well, you also had spirituality alive in a way that isn't in the material world. Well, it can't be in the material world yeah. because the belief structure rules it's, it out. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, so I mean, so let me just say that. The problems that we're going to talk about today have a lot to do with the 20th century and the 21st century, but not previous centuries, all of which had problems with death. It's not like everybody said, right. hey, that's a great thing. I mean, it's always been a dilemma for humans because we can anticipate our own deaths. But in this particular time, there, there's been, and I, I, I know I can get all jazzed up about this, but there's, there's been this focus on greed, that you need to do all sorts of things for yourself and your family, right, right. that like amass a lot of material world, wealth, right, right. you know, figure out what the latest medical intervention is, right. protect yourself day and night from death. But you can't, because exactly. as long as you're in life, you're exposed to death. And, but this, this idea of, we can make ourselves safe. We can accumulate enough medicine, medical knowledge, wealth, and so on to make ourselves safe is, I believe, a delusion of the 20th and 21st century that has led to tremendously destructive outcomes exactly. all over the world because exactly. America has yeah. so much presence in the right. whole world in exactly. regard to media and wealth. And it contributes to the destruction of the planet as well. Yeah. And it's you know, short term. It's a short term thinking. Well, I don't think it is short I mean, term. I mean, if you believe in a material world, you believe that you should get as much stuff as you can. But when you die, you can't take any But it would go you. to your family. Uh-huh. It goes to your family. So your the family long view family. goes into that material being able to be That's in right. the hands of the... Right future generations. So that's a, you know, just mm -hmm. to make that contrast, mm -hmm. your long view could go towards the development of your consciousness beyond death, right. or it could go to amassing wealth for your family after you die. And those directions are very significantly different directions for not only the life of the planet, but for the species, the yeah. species does not point. do well a great point. with this amassing of wealth thing and all the wealth gap and, and inequality. Everything. Yeah, that so it creates. this yes. issue about death is a very big issue. It's not just something you tack on exactly. when you get old. That's right. You know? That's right. So I want to put everything in that framework before we get into, you know, how does science and even materialist science look at death right now? I want to be sure that there's a clarity that the way that the three of us are looking at it is from a Buddhist perspective, and then from the perspective of the current science of near-death experience 
and reincarnation studies. And so we're not looking at death from the perspective of materialism, but a lot of people listening will be. Exactly. And so I wonder, Gary, if you have anything you want to chime in about, any thoughts while... I'm listening and what's going through my mind is all the things that we are investigating regarding near death mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that the science itself although it started materialist it's been confronting science itself has had to go through a revolution since the beginning of the 20th century to really bring something that you might call spirit or consciousness back into the the scientific equations exactly quantum physics things like that that's right now because of all the MRIs and the advanced brain scan technology they're actually getting a glimpse into what goes on in a in a in a brain in this in this instance during death in fact I just read an article where a guy had gone in for a brain scan and while he was having the brain scan he had a heart attack and died so it's the first brain scan on a living brain of a dying person. And one of the things they noticed was that the part of the brain that's most associated with dreaming was quite activated during this event mm -hmm. of this guy dying. And it led to the supposition from one of the, uh, well, I guess at some point a researcher, this was not necessarily... I don't really know what the nature of the scan was. Was it research or was it an EKG for other reasons, uh, medical reasons? But they suggest that the life review that some people say, my life flashed before my eyes mm -hmm. as I was dying, that in fact there may be some right. to back up that. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. When that, I that's, a, that. that's a really good point because yeah. there is science that's developing that is not materialist. And um, that's where we're going to be kind of bringing in some of the issues about what are we fearing about death mm -hmm. and, and what's a reasonable concern about death, you know, if you are not a materialist. Because if you're a materialist, death is the end. And so I, I want to talk just a little bit about that point of view before we move on. How, how do you, Eleanor and, and Gary, how do you understand the materialist fear of death? So you have you know, existential philosophers in the middle of the 20th century saying there's just one life, it's over when it's over, that's the end, make what you can of it, you know, make the most of it because that's all you've got and there'll be nothing else. So what would be the fear of death if you just had one life? Why, why would you be afraid of dying? Because at the end, supposedly, there's nothing. It's just like nothing. So what would be the fear? I mean, what does Sartre say? Or, it's, you know, well, uh, you might say it's the ego's it, fear of dissolution. That's right. But as a Buddhist, you learn the idea that the ego is a bit of a fiction. It's really... It's a process. Your your identity is a process, and that this is part of the process. But in any event, it's it's the fear of that cessation, That's which, right. which you're programmed really quite physically to resist and guard against. Right, because you've been resisting it all of your life. Right. You've been resisting somebody 
lowering your social status or insulting you. So your ego is very guarded. Yeah. You know, most of the existentialists really didn't know much about Buddhism. I mean, in that period of time, not a lot was translated. Mm -hmm. They knew a little bit about Zen, and it seemed appealing because it's mm -hmm. like present moment awareness. Well, they just came out of the Second World War as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think had a great influence on that kind of nihilism and. Um, well, the yeah. idea that God was dead yeah. uh, certainly came from looking at what yeah. humans had done in the yeah. Holocaust. Yeah. And so the idea was if there's a God, that God must be dead. But there was really a misunderstanding, I think, of God and of Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens do awful things all on their own. They don't need anything else to motivate them. Yeah. Well, Camus you know, wrestled with that in a beautiful way. Right, except that you know. Camus didn't believe in an afterlife. Well, but he believed in love, and he believed in, in you know human potential, and he believed in becoming a better human being. I mean, he never he never turned from the the belief that humans can be horrible yeah, to he one saw, another. Yeah, he saw life as a, but a he challenge, saw, yes, a noble sort yeah, of challenge. He did. Right. He had right. there was a there was a, an elevation of morality there that was uh, meaningful. Meaningful. There's also this thing that the organism just wants to yeah. persist. Yeah, I think all organisms yeah. do. You know, you look at an ant or anything that you can look at, and if there's a threat to it and it's almost dead, it seems to like reorganize and come back if it can. Mm -hmm. So once something gets into life, life is a self-organizing principle. Mm -hmm. It just It's a system that keeps on generating organization of itself until it can't generate that anymore. And that you could call is is death. It's anti-entropic. It, it, yeah, when it cannot. Yeah. You know, no, it's anti-entropic until it can't. Mm -hmm. Then it has to. Then it has to cease. Then it tries. as a system. So life is the self-organizing system, and it will keep going. Any kind of life you can, you know, observe that. But getting back to that issue, even with Camus, the end of the physical life was the end of life. And so then what would be elevated would be the meaning of life when you're alive, the meaning of community, society, etc. But death then is kind of meaningless except to give you a limit on life. And so that has been a prevailing idea that death is the limit on life. And that's been a prevailing idea for intellectuals, particularly since about post-World War II. And the idea accompanying it is that God is dead. There's no, there's no supernatural power. And so we really have to pay attention to what humans are doing and how humans are creating things. We have to find our meaning in a human life, a human context. So, you know, within that framework, there's this idea that death isn't very frightening. But the fact is what you said, Gary, is true, that the ego still doesn't like the idea that it's not going to exist anymore. And so people get anxious about their non-existence, and then they start to do things like, you know, ramp up their wealth and their will to give to somebody else, even though they're not going to be here, etc. So what I want to say is that that whole paradigm of death, death as the end of the show, death as this is it and everything is over, and you know you can't ever have anything again that paradigm is ending and it's ending precipitously if you want to say that seems it, to be. it will end soon 
in a very clear way. And that's as a result of science. And it's really as the result of what I would say the conundrum of materialist science. That materialist science got to the point of investigating the spaces between these subatomic particles within an atom and they couldn't investigate it anymore because they couldn't find any platform there to investigate it from. It's all the platforms collapsed. And so from the point of view of physics, we're really at the end of, the, of our ability to find some particle to land on that would be a thing. And that's the foundation of life. That's over. And then on the space-time issue. Yeah, in the, op in the opposite magnitude That's, direction toward yes. how far out into the universe can we see. So we talk about that. To, yeah. Well, the, the assertion is that they've used the Hubble to look back to pretty much the dawn of time. And that, this, if I understand this theory, that that sort of marks a limit of space-time, or at least the limit of what we can perceive of it yeah. with any instrument, really. Right. Because beyond that, the expansion of the universe would mean that the light from any event past that threshold would never reach us. Right. It just won't reach right. us, because the right. universe at that in that scale will be expanding faster than the speed of light at right. its periphery. And so there's a I bunch hope that's of correct. yeah that seems correct and there's a bunch of physicists now that are beginning to theorize beyond space time and what they're theorizing is that there is something generating space time and one of the big theories is that it's consciousness that's generating space time so space time is not generating consciousness there's an interactive network of conscious ages that is generating the world that we're in and it's hard to cognize that. We've talked about it in regard to Don Hoffman's work. I don't think we need to go through the details of it right now. But in terms of subatomic physics and the physics of what? Cosmology, astrophysics. astrophysics. Both of those forms of our sciences have gotten to the point of we need to get beyond space-time. So we're out of the paradigm that light is the fastest speed. We're already out of that. So that's one side of of the change in science. And then the other side is that the, a number of scientists for a while now, since the middle of the 20th century, have been studying reincarnation in a very systematic way, <clears throat> taking the stories of young children uh, that can be validated. Past life memories. Their past stories. life memories, and usually their children under four who remember it spontaneously, give you the details of their lives. Then you've got an investigator coming in, getting those details, then validating it from the family that that child was from. So there's a lot of information, thousands of cases that are validated. And there's a Netflix series called Surviving Death that gives the general public the information now about a new paradigm of consciousness in which consciousness is not contained in a material universe, not generated by the material universe, but is in fact generating. The material universe and so studies of reincarnation people at the department of uh, the division of perceptual studies at the university of virginia dr jim tucker is the one who studied children before that dr ian stevenson and then the studies of near-death experience are on the other side of this huge bank of science 
that now is well validated, well developed and so on. So the other side of the near-death experience, people have been collecting data for about the last 25 or 30 years on the experiences of people who have cardiac arrest but then survive, they're, they're resuscitated. So there's a field called resuscitation medicine, they're collecting this information. There's, there's a lot out there that has been well established in terms of the experiences that people go through uh, when they lose their ability to use the brain in a normal way. That would be the thing that is the critical thing. But also, in many of these cases, the heart stops. And the heart may be stopped for as long as 30 minutes and still resuscitated if the person's in a cold situation. You could sort of think like hibernating. And then they resuscitate the person if they're able to resuscitate the brain without damage to the brain, people remember and tell you what their experiences well, are. Science is advancing and in, in, in being able to validate a lot of what the mystical and spiritual worlds have known for the very, very, very long time. Well, yes, mystical... It's becoming much more in the zeitgeist now and, and greater awareness and popular appeal and all of that, but it's been around for a very long time. Well, it's been around in a different way. It's yes, anecdotal. Well, from a spiritual it's a, Yeah, point it's of been view. like anecdotal. People yeah. say, this is my experience. Yeah. Now, they've collected the experience of lots and lots and lots of people, and that's the advantage of science. Yeah. I mean, the disadvantage can be it becomes materialistic. The advantage is that it allows us to investigate our world in a systematic way that is yeah, it's based... It's more popular now, yeah. I mean, 25 years ago, I was dealing with it in a way it wasn't so popular. You couldn't talk about it as openly as you can now today. Near death. But yes, 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 yes. Or I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and there's all those experiences of, of you know death beings. But I've been very involved with it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But it's now popular. It's now it's kind of up, so, yeah, I'm up and out. In but a way. I'm reluctant to say popular because it's yeah. not popular. Well, I find it is. Yeah, I find it is. I find friends of mine writing books. I find mm -hmm. all kinds of things happening around well, the awareness people, around this, death. Well, this, I mean, I'm, I do. Well, but the scientists who are studying it, yeah, well, they've suffered. Well, no, they've suffered from having devoted their careers to yes. it because they don't get published yes. in the mainstream journals. The New York Times does not report on their work, and they are very clear that mainstream media and, to some extent, mainstream journals have rejected findings that are strongly scientific. And so when you say it's popular... Well, there's alternative means now. But there is, a, a, there is I think, huge a alternative growing means. popular yes. interest yes. in the, in the yes. whole subject. People are not necessarily waiting for the New York Times or, or, yeah. or established media in that way, but there are all these alternative um, channels that are available today this in a way that This pandemic may have served as a... Yeah. As a prod to yeah. move that I mean, forward. I'm involved with it. Okay, yeah. it could be. You know, I'm involved, of course, too, but yes. I want to say that scientists have sacrificed a lot. I just want yes. to acknowledge right, because that people they were have embedded in their the materialist whole career. paradigm that's right. so deeply that's right. and that their still colleagues goes, were not interested right. in what and they had And believe me, the materialist paradigm is not over. Yeah. No. no, I mean, this whole COVID thing shows you where your fear of death can go. It can go into a panic in which you don't even understand what you're doing because you're so afraid that you will do whatever an authority tells you to do, even if you haven't looked into the effects 
you know, for yourself. Right. Making so, an uninformed choice. You make an uninformed choice. Yeah. So, you know, we're in a particular time where I feel like what what is developing scientifically to help us understand that our evidence for consciousness beyond death is not anecdotal. Right. It's, it goes beyond the anecdotal. That that development is a result of some scientists really sacrificing in their careers and devoting themselves almost exclusively to investigations that are not accepted still in the materialist paradigm. How quickly do you think that could shift? Well, wait, I asked Bruce Grayson. I want to speak a little bit about Bruce, Brace, okay. Bruce Grayson, but yeah. when I asked him, he said um, it'll, it'll all be out in the media inside of 10 years. Bruce Grayson is the top investigator of near-death experience. He's a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia. He's emeritus now. And his recent book, After, is an extraordinary book that collects the data and analyzes data on near-death experience science through resuscitation medicine throughout the world. And so he gives all sorts of very precise investigations. For example, you know, what's the difference between, you know, taking LSD, the experience you have there, and going through a near-death experience? Is there a difference? And he goes into, they've tested that question, looking at it and saying, people who are on LSD when they have a near-death experience, because they've collected evidence on people, like somebody who jumped off a building and lived, you know, who was on LSD. Whose heart stopped. Whose heart stopped, and that they could then look at the experiences that he was having on LSD and compare those to the experience he had in near death. And he could compare them also. And then they started collecting cases. So there are lots of cases of very specific things in regard to what is a near-death experience? What are we to anticipate when we're, when we're dying, mm-hmm. you know, by the data that have been collected? Um, and what's not? What's a delusion? What's a hallucination? You know, all of those questions, these scientists are answering. And Bruce Grayson, as he said in the interview that we did on Beyond the Fringe, he, he said, you know, I'm a materialist by background. I never gave any thought to death. And now, What's the biggest finding from his science, his scientific investigations? I have no doubt, he says, that consciousness continues after death. No doubt. However, he says, we don't have good paradigms for understanding how that works because our paradigms are so strapped to the material world. We think of you know, everything from a materialist perspective mm-hmm. rather than from what we're now going to have to build, which is a perspective of something that is generating space-time, and let's just say that the hypothesis is that it's consciousness that's generating it. It's not something else. But um, So Bruce Grayson, a major scientist of near-death experience, also the person who points out that our definition of death is constantly changing. You know, I mean, if you ask people, how do you know that somebody is dead? I mean, most people would say, what? Their heart stopped. Their heart stops, but how, what would be the evidence that, for example, if, you're an, if you've got an organ donor status on your driver's license, and so your body comes into the hospital and it says organ donor, how do they know they should take the organs? EKG? Yeah, 
what is it they're looking for? Flat. A flat line on the EKG. That's when you harvest the organs. Now we know quite certainly... Before the heart stops. Before the heart stops. Now we know that people are not dead when they flatline. And we know that from the near-death experience studies. The power of the heart. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the heart also, once it stops, you're not really dead. Because the, the heart could come back. That's why you can your heart can stop for 30 minutes. Under the right conditions, your heart can come back. So these, these definitions that we had... You know, and you would likely for that thirty minutes be flatlined. You'd be flatlined for sure. When your so heart stops, no every there's, there's flat. No there's breath. no breath. There's no there's no activity in the brain. There's no activity in the heart. That's what happened with the sixteenth Karmapa, that freaked all the doctors out because you know they. He lived beyond all of that. You know he was he stayed alive over a period of days and, and all of the medical everything, you know, just had never seen anything quite like that before. And now we know, and even in the Netflix series, we see people that have stayed alive because your heart stopping, your brain flatlining, your breath stopping yeah. are not the absolute yeah. I think it was three days with the 16th Karmapa. So what would, yeah. you know, so from a Buddhist perspective, we do have a definition of death. Then, of course, from near-death experiences, we know that it's a near-death experience because the person comes back to life, you know, so they're not dead. And so what would you say, death, if we, if we get rid of the flat line as the definition, because we know now that people come back after flatlining, we know that they also are conscious, we know now that people come back after cardiac arrest, what's the definition of death? When you leave your body, I when suppose. When your consciousness departs yeah. from the body. When the consciousness departs is a question that Buddhists have raised for a long time. They, they've, they've warned us it is not when the breath stops. And so even when the breath stops and someone has died, they can still hear you. They can still see. Many people could see at that point. They could see the room. And so we've been warned by Buddhists, don't say negative things about people when they've just died. So the death sign that typically we believe in is the, is the breath stopping, right? Even though many people would say it's a flat line because they are willing to donate their organs when their brain flatlines. But it's a lot of people in different spiritual traditions do not donate their organs because they need for that the three days to not be touched, to be not interrupted. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, none of the Tibetans have the, as far as I know, the organ donor thing because you can't. Because your, your heart has to be beating for your organs to be harvested. And so, yikes. You know, that's like once you see what death is and, and you know, the fact that the consciousness can be there still even when the heart has stopped. Right. You or start when the to medical world decides that you're dead, but then in certain traditions, spiritual traditions, you're not to touch the body for three days. 
Well, in, I mean, in the Tibetan world, it's even a, a lot longer. Well, it depends on the spiritual accomplishment. Well, it does, of that it does. But it's also written in a lot of documents in terms of uh, people who are more conscious about the dying process, where they put that in their material to say, "Do not move, you know, do oh, not yeah. interrupt my right. body for three days, or don't move right, me." Or right. I feel like that's a specialized kind it is, of it's thing. It's not just you know, Buddhist not, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know any yeah. other tradition yeah. where you're not supposed yeah. to touch the body for. Yeah. Because in the Jewish tradition, you're supposed to bury that body by sunset. So right. it's just the opposite. Right away. You get, yeah. you get in, in, you know, get rid of the body right away. But simply from the point of view of people thinking about what is death? How do we define death? It's been a moving target. Mm-hmm. You know, we've said it's a flat line. That was actually a committee decision that was made at Harvard when the issue of organ donation began to come up in the medical profession. And of course, it's profitable. You know, people make money on organ donation. And so then it was heralded as something new to extend life. And then the organs had to be harvested while the heart was beating. So again, if you get past all of these definitions, flat line, heart stopping, breath stopping, and realize that those have all been moving targets, then you end up with the departure of consciousness from the material body is the point of death. And then the question is, what happens to consciousness? Because we know what happens to the body. The body basically, you know, is destroyed. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it decays. It, it decays. It's its ultimate. It's no it's longer in the sustains itself. It and... feeds the worms or yeah. whatever. You know, it's feeding something else. So thinking then about this definition of consciousness departing the body and the consciousness continuing, what would you be afraid of? Would there be fear in that? Or is there, you know, how do you think people would say that if this definition of death is changing and we recognize consciousness goes on beyond the physical moment of the departure? You would think that it would tend to make you less fearful. And tell me what, what your thoughts are there. Well, just because it's not the end. Yeah. You know, then the fear, you still would have, I would imagine, the ego fear of the dissolution of the familiar self Mm -hmm. with all of that implies and and the ways in which uh, the recognition of self is built on that. So you're going to lose all those markers. Mm -hmm. You're just going to be something like a a perception, a point of view that moves into something different. But you could really, and I think there's, uh, as Eleanor said, there's some changes that are emerging, sometimes kind of rapidly. And so the idea of how should one be afraid of death at all, maybe one should celebrate one's death. Mm -hmm. Um, Why would you celebrate? Because it's a huge transition it's the only thing that's as big as being born yeah is dying and it's a and it could be the gateway to something quite phenomenal that's right it could be the gateway to liberation and in fact yeah. in the buddhist tradition the moment of death that exact little tiny chitta as it's called this little nanosecond is the most important moment in your existence as an individual like an individual eleanor an individual Polly. Most important moment is that moment, because that's that's a you know that's the moment when you can reach complete liberation, because 
you're moving out of your familiar existence and you're going to move into something else. But if you're alert at that moment, you can get out of space-time. You know, you can get complete liberation. Or as the Buddhists say, off the wheel. You get off the wheel. I guess for me, I don't say very much because I've never thought in that way or with science or any of that because I've been so deeply rooted in spiritual traditions most of my entire life. But it, for me, it's rooted in, in the quality of how I live my life that determines how I die, <laughs> even though I'm highly trained in terms of, you know, transference of consciousness at the moment of death. I mean, I, I've given 40 years of my life to that, but I think about, I think about the quality of, of how I live my life, almost like I'm an old Cathar, that the only way I'll go home into that vast consciousness of the ground of all things is through the integrity of how I've lived this life. But you have no fear or you fear it? I don't have fear. fear. No, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm not going to hurt or suffer or cry or be uncomfortable or any of that. But I don't have any fear. No, I don't. I have fear that I might not meet the challenges of being a better human being in this lifetime. That's very important to me. How I live this lifetime de- determines my relationship to death and consciousness. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.